Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is the Colin McEnroe Show. I'm John Dankoski. I'm sitting in for Colin today. Colin has been made very sick by either this election or by a virus or something. So get better soon, Colin. I'm stepping in to talk about the stuff that pretty much everyone is talking about these days, how we are or are not processing the news that Donald Trump is the president-elect. Now, Eric Deggins is NPR's television critic. He's the author of Race Bader, How Media Wield Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Last week before the election, Deggins wrote a piece on the biggest winners and losers in media in this election cycle. But, of course, an awful lot has happened since last week, even in the last 24 hours. And so from the point of view of a TV critic, maybe the most exciting thing that has happened was Dave Chappelle's return to TV as the host of Saturday Night Live this past weekend. So we're going to start before we uh, turn to Eric with a chunk of Dave Chappelle's monologue this Saturday night. And we should warn you that it includes the N-word. A few weeks ago, I went to the White House for a party. It was the first time I'd been there in many years. And, and it was very exciting. And BET had sponsored the party. So everyone there was, was black. <laughs> and it was beautiful. I walked through the gates. You know, I'm from Washington, so I saw the bus stop, well, the corner where the bus stop used to be, where I used to catch the bus to school and dream about nights like tonight. It was a really, really beautiful night. And at the end of the night, everyone went into the West Wing of the White House, and it was a huge party. And everybody in there was black except for Bradley Cooper for some reason. <laughs> And on the walls were pictures of all the presidents of the past. Now, I'm not sure if this is true, but to my knowledge, the first black person that was officially invited to the White House was Frederick Douglass. They stopped him at the gates. Abraham Lincoln had to walk out himself and escort Frederick Douglass into the White House. And it didn't happen again, as far as I know, until Roosevelt was president. Roosevelt was president, he had a black guy over and got so much flack from the media that he literally said, I will never have a nigger in this house again. I thought about that and I looked at that room and I saw all those black faces in Bradley and I saw... (laughs) And I saw how happy everybody was. These people who had been historically disenfranchised and it made me feel hopeful and it made me feel proud to be an American and it made me very happy about the prospects of our country. So, in that spirit, I'm wishing Donald Trump luck, and I'm gonna give him a chance, and we, the historically disenfranchised, demand that he give us one too. Thank you very much. So that's Dave Chappelle uh, opening this past weekend's Saturday Night Live. Eric Deggins from NPR is on the line with us. So, Eric, first of all, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, Give me your impressions as you were sitting and listening to Dave Chappelle do that live on television this Saturday night. Uh, Well, first of all, um, it was amazing to see him return to form um, almost, it seemed, effortlessly. You know, this was a guy 
who had left his very popular Comedy Central show um, in the middle of filming the third season and gone to Africa. And uh, for a minute, people thought he had renounced show business. Um, he he had a moment a few years ago where he did some stand-up, and there was there was some talk that he was uh, trying to make a comeback in a way, come back to um, you know being a public performer, and and some of those stand-up gigs didn't go well, and, <laughs> and including so, right here in Hartford, as a matter of fact, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and so there was this concern that that Dave Chappelle might never figure out how to bring his voice back uh, to television, and so to see him. Uh, you know, deliver this masterful stand-up set, and then at the end of it, deliver this message that was typical Chappelle. I mean, like like David Chappelle is so hard to pigeonhole, and just when you think you know what he's going to think about an issue, he gives you he, he gives you this uh, you know monologue where he um, says he's willing to give Donald Trump a chance, but uh, but he demands that Trump also give people of color a chance. And, um, and and that's something you wouldn't necessarily expect from somebody who's talked about race and prejudice as exci- incisively as he has. And so it was unexpected and creative and funny. And it was a great way to start a show that was one of the most consistent Saturday Night Lives that I've seen in a very long time and also seemed to capture the mood of people who watch Saturday Night Live and people who are fans of late night satire. I think that's uh, a more politically liberal group of people who who seem to be stunned and dismayed by the election results uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of the other ways in which SNL captured the mood. But it's interesting what you say, too, about, you know, Chappelle kind of fighting his way back to television and having his his voice be heard by millions of people at the same time once again. I, I think one of the things that was refreshing for me, Eric, is that, frankly, We've heard from almost every living, breathing human on Earth about what they think about this election. Uh, Almost everyone's done a television stand-up. Everyone's had a hot take on this in one way or the other. But it was so refreshing to have a voice like his that we literally didn't know what he was going to say. And we knew it was going to be fresh, but that that is about it. The the fact is he was maybe the only high-level comedian right now that could have delivered the message he did, I think. Well, I mean, I don't know that we've heard a lot from Chris Rock. I don't know that we've heard anything from Eddie Murphy. There's there's a lot of talented guys out there who haven't uh who are not in front of microphones right now. Larry Wilmore, who hosted um the mm-hmm. nightly show on Comedy Central uh for uh several years, lost his show months before the election, and I have often wondered uh what he uh, would have said about um the election on Tuesday and 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 what he would have said about the weeks and months leading up to it. So, um, so I, I would I would respectfully disagree that there are mm. uh, there are there are several comedians, including comedians of color, who have not weighed in or have not had their views uh, delivered on such a high profile platform. And that's another reason why this Saturday Night Live felt so special because um, you know we haven't seen a lot of Dave Chappelle. And he came back on one of the biggest platforms possible and and, and brought a message that um, was was compelling and unexpected and, and very necessary for the moment. And, and, I mean, you make a really good point about these other comedians. I mean, Larry Wilmore's case, well-documented. He had a show that was canceled in the middle of this very important run. I would have liked to have heard what he had to say as well. Why do you think we haven't heard the voices of the Eddie Murphys or the Chris Rocks or the other 
uh, very talented uh, black comedians of our time whose voices we might want to hear a little bit more. Why do you think they're not saying something loudly? I, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, some of this is just, you know, uh, Chris Rock hosted the Oscars, and then, um, you know, he hasn't uh, he's, he's readying a stand-up mm-hmm. tour, uh, but he hasn't started it yet. Um, so it's sort of like it, it's a weird period for him. He's not uh, he's not public. He's not publicly active as a comic right now. He's 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 preparing for uh, 2017 when he's going to do a bunch of stand-up specials and then uh, a bunch of stand-up dates and then he's going to do um, it's going to be on HBO. Uh, and Eddie Murphy um, has uh, um, you know he he starred in a film that was uh, didn't get a lot of attention called Mr. Church, but he hasn't really been out there that much. Uh, and um, and Larry had a show canceled, and I and I think you know Larry's show was canceled in part because um, Comedy Central had two shows that were underperforming the shows they replaced, The Daily Show and his show, The Nightly Show. Um, they were you know The Daily Show with Trevor Noah was underperforming what John Stewart did when he was hosting the show, and The Nightly Show was underperforming what the Colbert Report was doing, and they had to get rid of one of them, and the The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is more of a flagship show for Comedy Central, and it's more focused on their target audience of millennials. So this is all like a complicated way of saying that uh, I don't think that racial issues necessarily have a lot to do with why we haven't heard from these people, but it is an unfortunate coincidence that all of this kind of happened the way it did. And uh, and in Larry Wilmore's case especially, it would have been nice if there would have been a way uh, for another show, I mean, you know, he probably had a non-compete or something, but man, it would have been great to see him regularly pop up on Stephen Colbert's show or regularly pop up on uh, John Oliver's show uh, to to uh, to find a way to give voice to some of the things he was talking about on the nightly show. Uh, but it wasn't to be, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, you know race had a lot to do with why we haven't heard from those guys. But the fact of the matter is. Uh, you know, some of our most brilliant uh, black comics uh, were not particularly visible in the run up to this election. We're talking with Eric Deggins, and he's a, a TV critic for NPR. He's joined us on the Colin McEnroe Show before. I'm John Dankowski, sitting in for Colin, who's uh, who's on the disabled list today. So hopefully he, he gets better soon. Um, SNL is, in, in your mind, one of the, the big winners of this election cycle, but a lot of people are saying that it's, it maybe caused some of the problems as well. Uh, in the piece that you wrote last week, Eric, you talk about SNL sort of finding itself around this election cycle, specifically with some of its political comedy. Why do you think it's a, it's a big winner out of all this? What do you think it did right over the course of the last several months? Uh, what they did was they played every political and comedic moment for maximum ratings. So when Donald Trump was getting a lot of media attention, but he was also uh, fighting to win the GOP nomination amongst the field of, at one point, up to 16 or 17 people, um, last year they they, uh, let him guest host the show. And it gave him uh, a level of attention and visibility, not just the visibility of hosting, uh, not just the promotional ads that lead up to the hosting, uh, not just the fact that it it makes him look like a good sport and humanizes him because he's uh, being funny, but um, it, it generated a ton of media coverage as people were trying to figure out how appropriate this was. I, as far as I know, it's the first time the show let somebody who was the the front runner 
for a major party nomination host the show while the election was in progress. Uh, so, so it was a it was a big step for SNL, but they got great ratings out of it. Uh, and then, as the uh, election sort of turned, and um, late night became uh, uh, much more aggressively critical of Donald Trump in the closing months of the uh, uh, of the uh, campaign, uh, then they had Alec Baldwin come on and do this sort of devastating parody of Donald Trump. Now, they had tried to find people on the show to play Donald Trump before. Um, Taryn Killam played him uh, at the at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. Uh, he's not on the show anymore. His contract wasn't renewed uh, for for this season. And uh, Daryl Hammond, uh, who was once a cast member and um, is uh, now an announcer on the show, he played. He also played him. And and for some reason, those guys weren't really able to sort of capture. Um, the absurdity of Trump in the way that Alec Baldwin did. And, and when Alec Baldwin took over the role, um, they got record ratings in um, you know, the, the fall return of the show. Uh, and in the three um, uh, installments that aired after that, it's interesting to note um, that Baldwin didn't come back as Trump uh, on Saturday. And, uh, and I, I haven't heard anything about mm. how long he's going to play him, if he's going to play him into the future. Um, but... Uh, uh, they have they have definitely played um, every twist and turn of the election for maximum ratings and 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 having Dave Chappelle, you know, one of the uh, one of the comedy world's most incisive voices on race, host SNL after the election, regardless of how the election turned out, it was going to be an an attention-getting uh, hosting stint, and and particularly given you know Trump's success. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are looking for someone with a forward-thinking view on politics and race to talk about this moment. So um, the overnight ratings were pretty good mm-hmm. for SNL, and I expect once we get final uh, numbers later today that they'll be even better. Uh, let's actually listen to a, a short clip from last year. I can't believe that it's it's already a year ago that, that Donald Trump actually appeared on SNL. Well, Mr. President, you did it. Just like I promised, right? (laughs) Halfway through into your first term and prosperity is at an all-time high. In two years, you really made America great again. See, I told you. It's more than just words and a silly head. First Lady Melania is 100% correct. I got to admit, you know, I I didn't think it could happen this fast. Everyone loves the new laws you tweeted. Terrific. (laughs) Just terrific. Again. Donald Trump appearing on SNL last year. It, it sort of plays into one of the interesting losers of your uh, of your last year and this election cycle is NBC writ large. So SNL, of course, is a is a vehicle of NBC. But it's not just the decision to put Donald Trump in this kind of softening, high profile, uh, kind of unprecedented role hosting SNL. But there was also a lot made of of Jimmy Fallon welcoming him on The Tonight Show and kind of tossing his hair and. Uh, joking back and forth again, softening this image. NBC didn't seem to do very well with its high-profile anchors. Matt Lauer got panned for uh, the way he moderated a forum. Lester Holt got panned for the way he moderated a debate. I know that NBC News and NBC Entertainment are theoretically two different things, Eric, but is NBC pretty much a a big loser out of all this in the way they, they played into the actual, you know, uh, election cycle itself. Well, I, I think NBC's biggest problem was the way that um, the 
video that featured Trump talking during an Access Hollywood appearance, um, how that was handled. Um, you know, your listeners will probably remember that the, this video surfaced of him, you know, sort of speaking explicitly about how he uh, hit on married women and touched them in ways that would be considered sexual assault. He was joking with Access Hollywood host Billy Bush, um, and um, the 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 uh, video surfaced initially because someone leaked it leaked it to the Washington Post. But it turns out um, that uh, producers at Access Hollywood had found uh, that footage days earlier and had uh, provided it to NBC News, and uh, they claimed that lawyers were reviewing the footage for several days. Um, I find it interesting that the Washington Post broke the story, and then MSNBC aired a story uh, really closely after their story, after the Post story appeared. And, it, uh, you know, it makes you wonder if they were waiting for someone else to break the story so their legal obligations would become clearer. Uh, but when you have a media operation that, um, you know, was in business with Donald Trump, um, he was the star of The Apprentice, and he also they also together put on, um, you know, televised his uh, beauty pageants for a time. And then he runs for office, and they have all this footage, and they have all these corporate connections with him. Um, it, it makes news coverage much more difficult uh, because they have all these other entanglements as uh, a media company uh, with him and uh, and with his uh, you know with his efforts. So it made it harder for NBC News to just sort of fairly and directly cover um, that particular incident because other parts of their company um, may have had other obligations, legal oblig obligations uh, to, to Donald Trump that they had trouble sorting through in a timely manner. So to me, that gives you a sense of how NBC sort of kept um, coming out on the, on the, on the, uh, the, the, the bad end of, of, of this uh, situation uh, and, and, and why it made it so much harder. It's made it harder for a lot of media companies to provide the kind of news coverage that you'd like because other elements of their business uh, may have connections to subjects of stories in ways that even the viewer might not be aware of. Uh, and I'm sure you know a lot of viewers are, are mourning the fact that the big casualty out of this is is poor Billy Bush. Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, it, it, it's such a... I mean, in, in a way, the casualty is this infotainment... Um, world that has been created, particularly on morning television. Somebody like Billy Bush, who who is not a journalist, nope. ha has been asked to act like a journalist in um, in several instances. I mean, people will remember that he interviewed Ryan Lochte, the Olympic swimmer, uh, right after this incident where Lochte claimed to have been robbed, and it turned out the story was completely different. And asking somebody like Billy Bush and paying them millions of dollars uh, to do a job that journalists really should be doing uh, is, again, a problem with NBC and the decisions they're making as a corporation. And, I, you know, I don't want to make fun of Billy Bush, um, uh, although, you know, he's an adult and, and, and he should be able to, uh, to, you know, tell his employer when he's being asked to do things he's not capable of doing. But but they put him in uh, situations where he had to act as a journalist, and he's not a journalist. Yeah. And 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 uh, and so to blame him for not meeting that standard, I think, is to uh, misplace the blame. Yeah, he he sort of put himself in the situation on the bus with Donald Trump, and that's 
sort of no one uh, to blame but Billy Bush for that. I, I will say it. I found it funny after that Lochte incident that the person who seemed to have the best journalistic instincts on the set of the Today Show was Al Roker, the weatherman. But there Al you go. A, <laughs> I've always said Al is an underrated um, element of that show, quite seriously. Yeah, no, uh, I, I know. And, and that's yeah. why he's been there for such a long time and why people continue to trust him as they maybe don't trust others. Quickly, but before we have to take a break, I want to get to one of your other winners here. It's a voice that we've known through the Today Show for a long time. Uh, Samantha Bee's uh, new show uh, really got started during the heat of this of this campaign. Let's let's listen to her very first show uh, after the election. Just a little clip. In the coming days, people will be looking for someone to blame the pollsters, the strident feminists, the Democratic Party, a vengeful God. But once you dust for fingerprints, it's pretty clear who ruined America. White people. I guess ruining Brooklyn was just a dry run. The... Caucasian nation showed up in droves to vote for Trump. So I don't want to hear a goddamn word about black voter turnout. How many times do we expect black people to build our country for us? White people, this is the worst thing we've ever... No, I'm sorry, that's a very high bar, but holy sh- and don't try to distance yourself from the bad apples and say, it's not my fault, I didn't vote for him. Hashtag not all white people. Shush, shush, shush. If Muslims have to take responsibility for every member of their community, so do we. Oh, that does feel awful. Yeah. 63% of white men said, if I can't be in charge, burn it down, which surprised exactly no one. And a majority of white women faced with the historic choice between the first female president and a vial of weaponized testosterone said, I'll take option B. I just don't like her. Oh, hope you got your sticker, ladies. Way to lean out. <laughs> so listening to Samantha <laughs> B, it, that's, that's a heck of a thing, Eric. <laughs> Wow, you you guys didn't bleep that. <laughs> well, we we bleeped some of it. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't hear it. I, I didn't hear it. I guess I didn't hear the bleep. I was I, I was thinking, boy, you guys are pretty pretty uh, free with uh, content here. Well, you know, I hey, it's, it's 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 Connecticut, Eric. It's a blue state. We can say all sorts of things. But what do you think? I mean, the, Samantha B really did find her voice. I think over oh, yeah. the course of these these last few months. Oh yeah, uh, you know, um, Trevor Noah when he took over the Daily Show um, is is much nicer and um, much less willing to be confrontational on that show, particularly with people who are in the studio, uh, which is a change from Jon Stewart. And I, I feel like Samantha Bee has really channeled the voice of Jon Stewart. She has taken up the mantle of being more confrontational, of being more incisive, um, of challenging people's um, notions about everything, uh, standing up and being a voice for women and women's issues, and and also trying to find new information about issues and present them uh, to her viewers. So, you know, she talked about how the GOP courted evangelicals and why so many people who are um, um, seriously Christian um, view that as almost being synonymous with being a Republican. It wasn't always that way. And she also talked a lot about the the rise of the quote-unquote alt-right. And she even went to um, interview hackers in Russia about what they were doing um, that might influence um, our election uh, and influence what we see on social media. So um, she was out there doing a form of reporting in a way um, that uh, even The Daily Show um, hadn't done as much. 
uh, another legacy, of the, I think, in the chain of the change in hosts. So, um, I, you know, I think she sort of flowered um, in the wake of this election. And one of the things that's interesting is to look at these late night people who've been sort of aggressively anti-Trump. And, you know, uh, I would say Stephen Colbert on CBS, Seth Meyers on NBC, Samantha Bee on TBS, they've taken particularly tough and, and uh, consistent anti-Trump stands. And in the wake of this election, uh, you know, rather than say there's a chunk of people we're not reaching or should we reconsider what we're doing, all of them in one way or another seem to double down and say, you know, we're going to hold on to our um, perspective, our attitudes, and we're going to continue to be as aggressive uh, uh, a critic of this new administration as we can be. And uh, and they have found their voice in a way. Uh, so so it, it will be interesting to see where these shows go from now because – um, I think in all three cases, um, that was the biggest challenge for each of these shows in different ways. Stephen Colbert struggled to find his voice when he first took over The Late Show from David Letterman, mm-hmm. and Seth Meyers struggled, too. And all of these shows have sort of hit their stride um, in the run-up to the election, and now um, the, the, the challenge is to keep that going. We're talking with Eric Deggins from NPR. Uh, as we head into our break, we're actually going to hear another star that was born during this election cycle, Kate McKinnon, who did a rather amazing Im- impersonation of Hillary Clinton. But she didn't end uh, this campaign cycle with, uh, with a traditional SNL skit. This is how she opened this past week's show. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I told the truth, I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm not giving up, and neither should you. And we're back. At least I think that's what Colin McEnroe says whenever we come back from a break. I'm John Dankosky, sitting in for Colin, uh, who's on the disabled list today. Get better soon, Colin. Uh, Donald Trump has been called a lot of negative things, a bigot, a sexist, a misogynist, a xenophobe, an Islamophobe. But another word, too. Here's Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid on the Senate floor in September. Media relies upon a catalog of buzzwords describe his actions. Press use words like hateful, intolerant, bigot, extremist, prejudice, to name but a few. Yet there's always one word that many of the press conspicuously avoid, racist. They never label Trump as a racist. But he is a racist. Donald Trump is a racist. Uh, And that's Minority Leader Harry Reid talking on the Senate floor. Uh, We're talking today on the show with uh, Eric Deggins from NPR, and I want to bring into the conversation Slate columnist Daniel Engber, who wrote a piece called Donald Trump is a Racist. He joins us now by phone. Hi there, Daniel. Hi there. 
Um, so first of all, explain a, a bit about your theory on the rival de- definitions of the word, because many of us, when we hear the word racist, we think of something very, very clearly. But if you inhabit a different skin, you might think of something entirely different when you hear the word racist. So, so talk us through this a little bit. Well, I just want to start by saying, the, you know, even listening to that Harry Reid clip, uh, it's just not true. I mean, people were the, the press, the media were calling Donald Trump a racist over and over and over again. Um, I, 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 there's almost like a, we can start with two different realities there. Why did Harry Reid think it was the case that no one was using, you know, the R word and talking about Donald Trump? But the the the, uh, the difference in how people understand the word racist, I think that I was trying to get at in my column was. Um, you know, this kind of uh, dictionary definition of racist, um, which I think would uh, refer to, you know, having an explicit ideology of racist domination. People who are, who don't try to hide their views about saying people of, a, of another race or ethnicity are inferior uh, versus what uh, Paul Ryan helpfully termed the textbook definition of racism at one point during the campaign, which I think is is a more nuanced, um, uh, let's say, modern understanding of what racism is that I think is heavily influenced by um, social theory and academia that looks at, you know, the possibility of of racist institutions, systemic racism, implicit racism. These are are the understandings of racism that uh, I hold personally and, and by which I think it's very easy to categorize Donald Trump you know, by that label. But but one of the things you write about, and I think it's become very, very true as we either gather exit poll data or we hear from voters around the country who, you know, if asked, are you a racist? They would, of course, say no. Uh, if asked, uh, would you vote for someone who would espouse certain views? They would say no. But then they went in to vote for someone who espouse those very views. So is there a disconnect, a big disconnect in the American public between that that textbook definition, uh, the definition that's that's a reality, uh, and maybe, I don't know, a third definition that has something to do with the fact that, you know, right now Donald Trump seems to have a, a guy sitting very close to him in his new White House who has espoused um, very, very racially divisive views, let's put it that way, uh, as part of Breitbart News. Uh, I w- uh, what would you? I'm. I'm what, what do? You, what is the third definition? Well, I guess. I guess the third. If if one definition is um, uh, a, a racist is someone who uh, says racist things, and another definition is one who uh, institutes racist policies, then there's perhaps a third definition that aims at uh, having only one race be in charge of either uh, a civic group or an entire country, that, that there's multiple levels of racism even beyond the, the one or two that we've talked about here? I, I mean, I, I, I'm getting a, I will confess I'm getting a little confused on, on mm. these different definitions myself. I think one of the things that happened in the campaign, as, as I saw it, was that, you know, as you say, we feel that we've reached this kind of national consensus that racism is bad, and not recently. This is for decades, and um, to the point where, again, you ask people, are you racist? Everyone wants to say no. You ask people, "Would you do you think a racist should be president of the United States? People say no, almost everyone, I would guess. Um, so what does that mean? I think it, it means that you know, if you can 
successfully label someone a racist, you've disqualified them from public office. So uh, all of a sudden, Donald Trump is is doing and saying these things that that you know I would look at and say, well, that's that's racist. Now I see this is a way to kind of short circuit the entire campaign. I can just point this out. This guy's a racist. Look, he, you cannot vote for him. We all agree you can't vote for a racist. And I think the, the illusion there is that just because I've decided that he's a racist, other people will agree that the same behavior. I mean, take, he, he began his whole campaign, right, by saying Mexicans, by calling Mexicans rapists and drug dealers. I think there are a lot of people who heard that speech and said, I can't believe this is a, you know, a, a candidate for president who's being so openly racist. And yet, even now, in response to my article, I get people saying, oh, well, you know, look at you. He, he wasn't calling Mexicans rapists. He was calling illegal Mexican immigrants rapists. So right there, even in how people heard that initial statement, it's true, that is what Donald Trump said at that time. I, I heard that and thought, this is, this is, uh, you know, I, I know what that means. I can read between the lines. But, but if you're just hearing it literally, maybe you think, okay, he doesn't qualify as a racist. He doesn't have a, a you know, this doesn't count for, for my participation in this consensus view that you can't vote for someone like that. And, of course, uh, often what you would get uh, when having that conversation is people would would say, well, if you played to the end of the clip, he says some of them are nice people, too, which, of, of course, doesn't necessarily uh, disavow the earlier thing. But but you say that, that maybe the turning point in this wasn't that initial statement about Mexicans or rapists, but it was really when uh, he decided that the federal judge uh, who was overseeing the Trump University lawsuit wouldn't be able to fairly hear this because he is a Mexican. Uh, of course, Gonzalo Curiel is someone born in Indiana, born in the United States. Uh, did people after that uh, Daniel, take a different view, uh, do you think, of that question of, is Donald Trump a racist? I mean, I think this was a live issue throughout the, the campaign, even leading up to six weeks ago when, as you played the clip, Harry Reid was uh, saying, you know, let's call him what he, what he is. He's a racist, and no one will admit it. Um, I, again, I think that's weird. People were saying it all throughout, but I think, more importantly, people were kind of arguing about it throughout. Um, at the time that, the judge, that Trump made the Judge Curiel comments, uh, there were a lot of stories. I was just going through this headlines. Uh, Donald Trump finally admits his campaign is racist. Um, this is at Slate. We had Trump's attack on a federal judge as an open appeal to racism. Uh, Trump is clearly racist. That's from Newsweek. And then you had uh, Jake Tapper interviewing Trump on CNN, and he just kind of he, – he, this was this moment that I remember – being really glad about here's someone finally saying it, you know, on CNN, not not in you know some opinion publication like Slate. Tapper is saying, you know, is that not the definition of racism, sir? He didn't say sir, but you know that's <laughs> the, the, the tone. And then and even Paul Ryan, as I said, that Paul Ryan came out at that time and said this is the textbook definition of racism. So there was, I mean, the fact that there was so much discussion of when and whether to use the term, and then even while people were talking about it, they were talking about the definition of the term, even if they were mm. applying it. it. It's this funny thing where you get people saying, look, this is clear as day, and yet also 
still sucked into this debate explicitly, it, this explicit debate over definitions. You know, this is clear as day, and yet, you know, here I am talking about what the defini- definition of racism is or ought to be. Hmm. I, I want to bring uh, Eric Deggins from NPR back in. Uh, because you've written a book called Race Bader, How Media Wield Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Uh, you may very well have a have a thought on this. What, what's your take, Eric? Well, I, I've always felt that it's counterproductive to focus on the question of whether someone is racist, because ultimately you're trying to peer into their head and see if they have some sort of value system that places the white race above other races. And there's a lot of people who support Donald Trump who would say they don't do that, and they're probably right. Uh, what we have to focus on is what people do uh, and what they say. Um, so so it's, the, the question shouldn't be, is Donald Trump racist? The question should be, is Donald Trump enabling prejudice and racism by what he says and does? And that, to me, is much, more, uh, much easier to, to, to um, determine an answer to. Uh, and it's and it's much harder for people who support him to shrug that off because what's happened is that um, people who support Donald Trump, basically what we're saying, um, those of us who are concerned about Donald Trump's views on race, is that he's supporting a system where white culture um, is the predominant culture um, and everything is sort of viewed through the lens of white culture um, and historic systemic prejudices against people of color are minimized or encouraged but not uh, taken seriously. And uh, it's it's hard to describe all that uh, in a simple sentence, but that's really what we're talking about. And so people who are supporters of Donald Trump, if you call him racist, they say, well, I think about some of these issues the way Donald Trump does, and I'm not racist. I don't hate black people. I don't hate Mexicans. Well, of course you don't, but you can still enable prejudice and stereotypes and racism by what you say and do, even if you are not a bigot, even if you are not racist. And that's the important point that his supporters need to understand and that people who are trying to dissect this issue really need to talk about. I don't care if Donald Trump is racist, because if he's encouraging racism through his speeches and his policies, it doesn't matter whether he is or not. Mm. Daniel, you have a thought? Well, I totally agree with that. And I, and I think the one of the points I was trying to get across in, in, in my column the other day was uh, that I think this was a, a strategic and sort of rhetorical error on the part of the never Trump movement to imagine that by calling out Trump and calling out Trumpism as racist, that somehow that was going to be, you know, an an influential uh, form of rhetoric. And it's just, you know, as as Eric says, it's it's not. There are a lot of people who just say, no, I'm not, you know, and, and you're trying to you're trying to shut down discussion just by boiling all of this uh, down to one word, I think, you know, it, it, it allows people to kind of take their eye off the ball. And, and the, there are many other ways to make the argument that Donald Trump was uh, unqualified to be the president and, and perhaps a dangerous figure in American politics and American public life. I think relying on, oh, look, you know, we caught him. He's a racist. Once we use that word, everyone agrees he shouldn't vote for a racist. I think that was the strategic error. I, Eric, quickly, I just want to get your thought on the thing that I was I was saying, perhaps inelegant, inelegantly to uh, Daniel before, is that I, I feel like maybe there's there is another level of this as, as we hear uh, 
in the last few days that Trump has installed Steve Bannon as perhaps his closest confidant. Here is someone who has has written headlines that for Breitbart News that people would say are misogynistic, anti-Semitic, that they are are racist. Is is this a, a different level of the conversation that we're having here now? Not what does a candidate say on the trail and what does he mean? What do his supporters say or mean or agree with? But that we've actually instituted in a very formal way someone in the White House who has a very long track record of the very type of language that we're talking about, you know, stirring people up. I think we're going to be in a constant battle throughout the Trump administration over whether or not uh, policies um, are racist or are prejudiced or are rooted in stereotypes. We're going to constantly uh, be at war over um, whether um, the kind of diversity that some people imagine is a good thing in America or whether it threatens uh, white America. Um, There is a vision of white America that Steve Bannon has and that Breitbart has and that Donald Trump has seemed to have. And the question is whether that vision of white America is an America that's inclusive and that welcomes people of color on their own terms or whether it demands that people of color um, subjugate their own interests and their own culture in order to be a part of the larger culture. And that's, that's the idea that people of color are most afraid of, that, that, that you have to bend the knee and you have to, to sublimate your own um, um, goals, your own um, uh, um, opportunities in this, in this America uh, in order to make way for this new uh, vision of white America. Uh, and, and, and that's something we'll only see uh, really over time, but certainly that seems to be uh, how Steve Bannon has, has um, uh, managed the content of Breitbart. I want to thank Eric Deggins from NPR and Daniel Engber from Slate for joining us for this conversation. Thanks, guys, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, When we come back, we're going to remember, yes, yet another musical legend who's passed away. The great Leon Russell will talk with Eric Lichter from Dirt Floor Studios in Chester. We'll be right back. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski, and you can find all of our shows at WNPR.org slash Colin or on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, revisit our conversation about losers. Now, back to John. Uh, Leon Russell was a session musician and a sideman and a producer and a songwriter and a pretty successful solo artist in his own right. He played piano and organ and guitar and bass guitar and mandolin. And, of course, he sang. He was the sort of musician who had a lot more influence, both directly and indirectly, on American music than most of us probably realize. He died this week at his home in Nashville. He was 74 years old. Let's listen to a little bit of the big hit song he had. It's called Tightrope. I'm up on a tightrope One side's hate and one is hope But the top hat on my head is all you see
see. I'm up in the spotlight. I want to bring in Eric Lichter. He is a singer, a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, a producer, and he owns Dirt Floor Recording Studios in Chester, Connecticut. Eric, good to talk to you. Hey, buddy. How are you? It's, it's good it, to talk to you, too. Well, it's, it's good to talk to you. It's, it's bad to talk to you whenever one of these great musical heroes dies, and there's a lot I want to talk about in a couple minutes with you. Yeah. But first of all, hey, tell us your Leon Russell story. You had something of Leon Russell's in your studio for a very long time, didn't you? I sure did. Um, and I think it's what uh, ultimately jump-started my, my interest in him, you know, deeper than, you know, sort of, you know, uh, what the normal person would probably know. Um, I wanted to do a little more research, uh, and I actually owned a tape machine when I first started to uh, get into this business. I had an opportunity to purchase uh, a one-inch eight-track Scully tape machine that was pulled out of his studio in Oklahoma, I mean, years and years ago, because, I mean, that ceased to be decades ago, but it was called Shelter Records. He had his own label, as we know, and he had a few studios, and this tape machine was actually that song we just heard, um, from the album Carney, um, was recorded on this particular tape machine wow. that I owned. And I, I recorded a bunch of records on it early on, and I got a really good offer to sell it, <laughs> which I couldn't refuse, and, and I sold it. But uh, I feel uh, you know, a very special connection to that song. You, sure. you, you know, a connection to that song, but also this guy, I mean, the work that you do, Eric, is in some ways a lot like what Leon Russell does. You play a lot of instruments, you, you produce, you help guide people through. Maybe explain a little bit to people who don't know him as a, as a solo artist, who they know many of their songs, about what influence he had. Oh, it's, you know, I, it's hard to know where to begin. You know, when I knew, you know, I was going to get to talk to you about this, it was, you know, do we go? You know, there's just so much territory to cover. Um, but as a musician, he was just, he was unequaled. He was an in, instantly recognizable, his musical style. Obviously, when you hear his voice, he had a kind of a goofy voice, you know. Uh, he had a, you know, his voice wasn't soothing immediately, which is why I think um, a lot of people, you know, don't know who he is necessarily, but might know a lot of his songs, you know, through the Carpenters or Ray Charles and on and on and on. Well, I, actually, we, we actually have song for you. This is one of his his best known songs, not from him singing it. I think we got the Ray Charles version here. Let's listen to a little bit. I've been so many places in my life and time. I sung a lot of songs. I've made some bad rhymes. I've acted out my life in stages. With 10,000 people watching But we're alone And I'm just to sing this song for you It must be quite a thing to have Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, and the Carpenters and so many others sing one of your songs and put their own stamp on it, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think there are over, you know, I think, they, I think there are over 40 different artists <laughs> that have actually recorded that song, and I think you know, had he only written that one song, I mean, that'd be good enough, <laughs> you know, but he's written so many. I know he wrote uh, Superstar with Bonnie Bramlett. The two of them wrote that together, which the Carpenters, you know, obviously, you know, they pretty much ruled the world with that song, uh, you know, for decades. Everyone thinks it's, the, you know, that they wrote it or that Richard Carpenter wrote it, but... You know, it's Leon's. Mm. And, of course, he, he was a producer. He, he produced Bob Dylan. Here's, here's a little bit uh, of Bob Dylan here. Oh, the streets of Rome are filled with 
So, Eric, explain what a producer like Leon Russell does. I mean, when you're when you're working with Bob Dylan, I mean, what do you bring out of Bob Dylan that that maybe he doesn't already have to give himself as you're producing him? Oh boy. Well, you know, obviously Bob went to him for a reason, so I think there was a mutual respect, uh, you know, that went two ways. And I think I definitely when you listen to, you know, when I paint my masterpiece, you know, that one right there, you can hear him all over it. You know, even though he isn't musically on the track, you can hear his influence. It's a kind of a swampy, wobbly, drunken, you know, that, that was sort of his vibe. <laughs> well, um, I... Well, I, I, we only have a, a little bit of time left, and I just want Kion uh, to bring in this one last song. I'm only going to bring this up uh, and say that of the many songs that he played on, Leon Russell played on, I think, one of my favorite Eric Clapton songs, uh, Let It Rain. I want to bring this uh, up as I say goodbye to Eric Lichter, a singer, songwriter, and instrumentalist, owner of Dirt Floor Recording Studio in Chester, Connecticut, who helped us remember Leon Russell. I, I'm bringing this up, Eric, because I think you and I may have actually played this music together at some point in the past, and it, it gives me good feelings to think about Leon Russell that way. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Take care. T- take care of yourself, and thanks so much. Get well soon, Colin McEnroe. I'm up on the tight wire. One side's ice and one is fire. It's a circus game with you and me. I'm up on the tight rope. One side's hate and one is hope. But the top hat on my head is all you see. And the wire seems to be the only place for me comedy of errors and I'm falling and like a rubber neck giraffe you look into my past well maybe you're just too blind to see <laughs>